3: Monday to Friday, 7am to 8:30am.
1: double!
0: Hello, hello. Welcome to 3CR Thursday Breakfast on 855am. It is currently 7:02, and thank you so much for lending a listening ear to this. Lovely show. Um, <laughs> uh, my name is Inez and I am doing a little bit of a solo show today in the studio. Everybody's been helping out behind the scenes, but you get to hear some of my lovely voice. So I hope everybody's having a really beautiful day. Um, hopefully not too much going on in your work week and you could have a little bit of a relaxing time. What's been happening with me is I have just been, you know, really tuning into those wholesome times um i'm finding myself more and more just going to the park and hanging out with friends and just trying to enjoy the little simple things so hopefully you can all get a little bit of that as well Uh, i thought we would just take a little rundown over what we're going to be speaking about today so first we're going to hear a replay from Jean and dale from 3cr dogs program and they'll discuss the affordability of uniforms and school supplies and how this impacts children as they return to school in 2023. And the excerpt first aired on 28th of January, and you can listen to the full discussion on 3CR's dog program. And the Australian Council of the Defence of Government Schools looks at public education and the separation of church and state. And then we will hear from Wayne Cocowatton, a Coomer man, a seasoned activist, and governor at the Brisbane Aboriginal Sovereign Embassy and they join us to speak about the Treaty Before Voice campaign. This grassroots First Nations campaign is being led by a network of First Nations communities and the Brisbane Aboriginal Sovereign Embassy, calling for an end to the war against First Nations people and questioning the current push for an Indigenous voice to Parliament. You can find out more about the Treaty Before Voice campaign on their website, and we'll also link that in the show notes. Then we'll hear a standby from the VALS prison healthcare webinar. Uh, it's been about, you know, 32 years since the findings of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. And, you know, current prison healthcare system is still currently failing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And it's contributing to ongoing deaths in custody. And VALS actually brought together a panel of excerpts a- experts, sorry, discussing the need for a reformed prison healthcare system so that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are incarcerated can access culturally safe trauma-informed health care that is of equal adequacy to what they would receive in the community. Now, this conversation is feeling Narita Wright, the CEO of files Sarah Schwartz and Megan Williams. And then lastly, we will hear from Janelle, who is from Decrim um, Sex Work in Queensland. Um, Yeah, so they're from a Queensland-based peer sex worker organisation called Respect Inc, which joins us to discuss the campaign to decriminalise sex work in the state and to report on Queensland's Law Reform Commission ongoing review of the sex industry. And sex workers in the state have long raised concerns about legislation that currently regulates the industry as well as its enforcement by Queensland police. You can also find out more about that campaign uh, by heading to Decrim Queensland on Instagram, but we'll also link that in the show notes. And now we'll play a little something and we'll be back with some news.
2: 3CR Breakfast
0: would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical
2: bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the Courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.
0: These are the news headlines for Thursday the 13th of April. Listeners, please be advised that the following headline contains mention of two First Nations people who have died. Northern Territory Police Officer Zachary Rolf, who was found not guilty for the 2019 murder of the First Nations teenager, Kumunjai Walker, has been terminated from his role at NT Police. Following his termination, community and family of Mr. Walker said in a statement released last week that, quote, it is important that we acknowledge that Zachary Rolfe has been terminated after breaching media policy, among other things, not his racist and violent behavior, unquote. The statement calls for a higher precedent to be set not only for the violation of media policy, but also for the violation of policy and law concerning the human rights of and racism towards First Nations people. This precedes outrage at the shooting of Marie Broman Aubrey Donahue by police last month, resulting in demonstrations across Western Australia and Queensland. The killing of Mr Donahue has prompted the resignation of activists Jessalyn Smallwood from the Queensland Police, First Nations Advisory Group. A coronial inquest will be held to investigate the conditions of Mr. Donahue's death. Also in news headlines, a series of deadly airstrikes in Myanmar on Tuesday has left 53 dead, 40 injured and the death toll expected to rise. The attack targeted a village ceremony held in Sagan region to commemorate the opening of anti-junta office by the National Unity Government. Now victims of the attack are said to include children between the ages of three to five, school children performing at the event, with the majority of fatalities also being civilians. Now this follows an extensive history of abuse and genocide of ethnic minority groups in Myanmar. The military seized control of the region in February 2021 and has since been accused of numerous human rights violations, including unlawful attacks, killing, and injuring civilians. And finally in headlines, an independent investigation into the Menendee mass fish kill in March 2003 has revealed the role of water authorities in this catastrophic event. Millions of fish died as a result of low oxygen levels caused by hypoxic, Black water in the Darling Barker Basin, with native species such as the Bonnie Bream and Golden Perch making up 85% of the dead. Black water occurs due to flooding and contains a high percentage of organic matter and tennis. Previously, Water New South Wales and New South Wales Department of Planning and Environment, also known as DPE, successfully reduced the flow of black water into the Darling Barker to protect water quality. However, just two days before the mass fish kill, both Water NSW and DPE were observed via satellite imaging with their blackwater outlets open, allowing a catastrophic volume of blackwater to flow unchecked into the Darling Barker Basin. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 13th of April. You're listening to 3CR on 855 AM, and it is currently (laughs) 7.09.
1: Salam Behamegi This is Jahan Khonlu from Salam Radio Tune in 4-6pm to every Sunday on 3CR For a wide selection of modern music From the greater Middle East and beyond We feature guests both locally and internationally based To help bring new sounds to you For more information Please follow our Instagram At Salam Radio Show So tune on in
0: As a special little treat, um, how about we listen to a little bit of a song, um, get the good morning vibes going? I'm going to play Real Love, which is by Sleeping Tom and Nairi. <laughs> You've just heard Real Love by Sleepy Tom and Nairi. I love listening to that track, especially when I'm going on my after-work walk. After work walk? <laughs> Those words are hard to say in consequence. Um, but, yeah, they uh, it's just a nice little track to, to keep us all going. And now let's go to a replay uh, from Wednesday Brecky where Jean and Dale from 3CR's dog program discussed how affordability of uniforms and school supplies impacts children as they return to school in 2003. This excerpt first aired on the 28th of January, and you can listen to the full discussion on 3CR's DOG program. And the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools looks at the public education of separation of church and state. The Productivity Commission has come out with a scathing report
4: on the state of education in Australia. And they've talked about absolutely everything except the key thing, which is funding, that the funding arrangements in Australia are diabolically unfair, unfair to public education. But now the Productivity Commission hasn't tackled that. But it is interesting to find out what it has tackled. And is going to tell us
5: about that. Over to you, Sol. Thanks, Jean. So, Gabriella Marchant and Penny Timms write this article for us entitled, National Education Strategy Has Done Little to Improve Student Outcomes, report says. The Productivity Commission has issued a scathing assessment of Australia's national education strategies, saying they have done little to improve student outcomes during the past five years. The report released today, obviously not actually today. Um, this was posted on the 20th of January. Um, the report examined the National School Reform Agreement, a strategy agreed upon in 2018 by federal, state, and territory governments to improve student outcomes. It found national reading and numeracy results had generally declined since 2018, and inequalities in educational achievement had not been addressed. In a statement, Education Minister Jason Clare described the report as damning and said it made clear that serious reform is needed. The Commission suggested the new five-year education strategy across the Commonwealth, states and territories should focus on better supporting teachers and school leaders to do their jobs and help schools to implement evidence-based teaching strategies. It also wants student well-being to be made a national priority to help address entrenched inequality and improve overall achievement. That is something recent graduate Katie Owens would support. She said she was a pretty happy kid until grade nine, and then she started struggling with school. I just didn't get up in the mornings, so that was really hard for my parents, and they were looking for other options, she said. I think it was a mix of pressure from mostly myself and then just like others around me at school. That was until she started at Launceston Big Picture School, a not-for-profit fee-free school which prioritizes student well-being through a student-led curriculum. Ms. Owens said she would not have finished Year 12 without the support she received at her new school. It is the kind of approach the Productivity Commission wants to see more of. Whilst the previous National School Reform Agreement, which expired at the end of 2022, did set goals of improving equality for some of the most vulnerable students, the Commission said a lack of data regarding reporting and clear measures meant there was little accountability. That, it said, needed to change. In 2021, in the NAPLAN tests, 5% of students did not meet the minimum standards for reading, and 4% of students did not meet the minimum standard for numeracy. The Commission recommends that each state and territory should set a target to reduce the share of students who are falling behind, Commissioner Natalie Siegel-Brown said. Targets do not guarantee success, but they create a clear direction for reform and make governments accountable. She also worried that while teachers in Australia tended to work longer hours than those in many other countries, they had less time for activities that could make meaningful change. The commissioner believed the teacher shortage was partly to blame. The president of the Australian Education Union said the report failed to address the elephant in the room. You cannot separate improving educational outcomes for students from school funding because school funding delivers the additional teachers, support staff and learning programs that these children need, she said. We are disappointed that once again funding has been excluded from a major report. It is a sentiment Sydney Science teacher and New South Wales Teachers Federation member Alice Leong agrees with. The way that the system is structured is letting our students down because teachers actually can't cater for the students needs as much as they need to because we are so overworked, she said. Adding to the workload were large class sizes, which made it more difficult for teachers to dedicate time to students who might need more attention, she said. When you've got class sizes that are 30 pupils and you've got a mixture of students with very complex needs, a lot of students with additional needs, and you don't always get that classroom support, it's very difficult, she said. Mr. Clare said the report would play a key role in the development of a new national school reform agreement, adding that funding needed to be tied to reforms that would make a practical difference to student outcomes. While education unions have criticised the decision to extend the current funding agreement for 12 months to allow time for a new funding review, the Minister says it is crucial to find policies that work. Three of the report's recommendations include, one, develop firmer targets on achievement and publicly report on progress in implementing reforms each year. Two, design the next agreement so that it includes a focus on student well-being, and three, develop and deploy expert teachers to disseminate evidence based teaching practices.
1: And so once
5: again,
4: the teachers are put in the middle um, and they are going to be held responsible it's um It's a recipe for disaster, I suggest, until they come to terms with the fact that um funding of private schools has failed and it's failed dismally to produce results, perhaps they should just have a look at what goes on in other places like Finland or even Germany.
0: You've just heard an excerpt, which is a replay from the Wednesday Breaky show, where Jean and Dale from 3CR Dogs program discuss how affordability of uniforms and school supplies impacts children as they return to school in 2023. This excerpt first aired on the 28th of January, and you can listen to the full discussion on 3CR's DOGS program. The Australian Council for the Defense of Government Schools, DOGS, looks at the public education and separation of church and state. So here you are, too foreign for
2: home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ujoma Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Ayan every
5: Monday at 2.30pm on 3CR Community Radio.
0: It is currently 7.22 on Thursday, Bucky, radio time. <laughs> um, I'm going to be a little bit of your personal DJ uh, for a little while. Um, we're going to play just a couple of songs uh, and get us ready for the next interview. And right now we're going to go to Looper by King Stingray. That was Looper by King Stingray, and it's such a lovely track, it makes you feel really warm inside, at least for me it does. And now we're going to go to another track called Get Inspired by Genesis Owusu.
1: dollars baby it's not making sense how you pick you with your art when you can't even pay your rent shit for years and years and years but seems you haven't made a dent all that dream and shit you chasing and showed his face and came and went feels like i'm out here scuba diving with a and cop while my people biting demons and i can't they bite biting, they're fucking fleas. I'm snapping eyes. And-
0: So that was Get Inspired by Genesis Owusu. Uh, Apologies for the explicit language. A little bit of a delayed language warning there. Um, But for now, um, we will be back with your interview very shortly.
1: Tune
6: in to Rainbows Don't Fade with Age on Radio 3CR fortnightly on Mondays at 2pm.
3: Rainbows Don't Fade with Age, Melbourne's only show dedicated
7: to all things LGBTI, ageing and aged care.
6: With stories and information to empower and inspire action for all those interested in the health, well-being and
5: visibility of older LGBTI people.
1: We've got a common enemy, the same government
8: that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel, it's the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have, and so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity, it's about building workers' united self-defense mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle.
7: You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR,
6: 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au.
0: I thought we could squeeze in one last little song um, and we're going to play Don't Care by Janaba. So that was We Don't Really Care by Janaba. And now we're going to go to a replay from the VALS, uh, the VALS prison healthcare webinar. Uh, it's actually, you know, been almost 32 years since the findings of the Royal Commission into the Aboriginal deaths of custody were handed down. But the current prison healthcare system is still failing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and contributing to deaths in custody. Last week, uh, VALS, the Victorian Legal Service, brought together a panel of experts discussing the need for a reformed prison healthcare system so that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are incarcerated can access culturally safe, trauma-informed health care that is of equal adequacy to what they would receive in the community. The panel featured Nerina Wright White, Sarah Schwartz and Megan Williams. Megan and Sarah both gave evidence in the coronial inquest into the death of Veronica Nelson, who died in custody in 2020. The inquest found, among other failures of care, that Veronica's treatment was cruel, inhumane, and that her death was preventable. In this excerpt, Wurundjeri healthcare advocate Megan Williams speaks about what cultural safety means in the context of prison health care.
3: Cultural safety cannot occur without clinical safety and clinical safety cannot occur without cultural safety. And my colleagues and I tend to follow the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency's cultural safety definition. And they say that culturally safe practice is the ongoing critical reflection of health practitioner knowledge, skills, attitudes, their behaviour and their understanding of power differentials. We didn't see any of those elements in that so called care for Veronica. That word cultural confuses a lot of people, and they think that they have to provide Aboriginal culture so that Aboriginal people are safe.
7: You know, in the inquest, the coroner made several findings that the care wasn't equivalent to community health care um, and that that was causally related to Veronica's passing. I'd love to get your views on. The importance of breaking down prison walls what what it means for people in prison um, as to be part of the general community and having that access to the same community healthcare providers that exist in the broader community because currently i think we see in all states and territories um, you know healthcare often being run by the department of justice often being run by the corrections body that is responsible for punishment. Yeah, that
3: uh, notion of equivalence of care is really clearly stated in the UN Nelson Mandela rules that prisoners, which we don't use that statement anyway, prisoners should enjoy the same standards of health care available in the community and have access to the necessary health care services free of charge without discrimination.
7: It's so important, something that Veronica's family pushed for in the inquest, for the importance of Aboriginal um, community-controlled health organisations to be providing health services in prison. I know that, Megan, you spoke um, in the inquest really beautifully about um, the cultural isolation for Aboriginal people in prison and how that relates to healthcare. Um, I wonder if you'd speak a bit about that.
3: We've got good evidence from around Australia that Aboriginal health workers, Aboriginal health practitioners, are able to create those conditions for cultural safety and bring an enormous amount to their roles um, with expertise for caring for Aboriginal people and models of care. But we don't see um, sort of nationally or any state-based strategies that, uh, like the UN says, respect um, that experience of Indigenous peoples. Prisons should already be seen as part of the community. They are part of the community. We've got to really watch our language around going into prison or behind the prison walls or uh, behind bars. You know, we've got to really take ownership that we as taxpayers consciously fund these these places of punitivity with great risk for death. When we think about who's got a, a sort of successful, robust, Aboriginal workforce with great leadership and influence and in health, that's Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations. Why we do not want them to be delivering the care It's beyond me. The Royal Commission recommendations clearly stated where Aboriginal people are overrepresented in a prison, if there's a local uh, Aboriginal health service or Aboriginal medical services, they were then called, they should be providing the care. We we are in a a worsening state, and that's partly why the the coroner's you know report is so important, and you know why keeping Veronica in mind is so important. And you know, Sarah, you you said you know her her experience was not, um, you know, an exemplar or a special thing that occurred that actually could have been anybody. What we saw in in all those reports that I kind of forensically went through, went through all the government policies, all the organisational policies to see what's in here that could provide safety for an Aboriginal person who's well or unwell. And there's not even enough on paper, let alone in practice uh, as well. So, again, we've got to look to where the successes are, which is in the community, with outstanding leadership for this country coming from our controlled health organisations and legal services as well. You know, there's a great phrase that data encodes racism. And even our Australian Institute of Health and Welfare's data collection on the health and wellbeing of people in prison yeah, there's no questions in that from an Aboriginal perspective about health and holistic health too. So, you know, just a simple thing to be critiquing all the time, um, the narrative and the discourse as well. Because like you're saying, those reports said that all of that, all that was supposed to happen, happened, but there's nothing about quality in there either. So, you know, get, let's get busy with some mechanisms to understand quality of care um, as well. Well, thanks to you all for listening. Megan Williams uh, from UTS and Yulang uh, Wiradjuri. And thanks to Sarah and to all at VALS and all the support that I've had through being involved in the inquest um, for Veronica providing report and um, the enormous amount of work that many other people did and the deepest respect to um, the memory of Veronica and her spirit lives on and to to the family. For all those listening, just keep engaged with this issue. I hate having to use the words prison health together because it's prison unhealth, prison risk for health. Um, and justice health doesn't cut it because people think that that's getting equity in health outcomes, but we're talking about either the health and safety of people in um, in prisons in Australia. So yeah, keep your, your real scrutiny radar going, um, especially through listening to Aboriginal people's leadership on this topic. So yeah, thank you, Sarah. No, thank you so much,
7: Megan. Um, Thank you so much for speaking with us and for all of your amazing work um, to support Veronica's family in the inquest and um, your expert evidence, um, which the coroner referenced in the inquest. and. Um, which I think will hopefully lead to some significant changes. Um, Yeah, as Megan said, prisons are unsafe places, they're unhealthy places. Um, And uh, I think it's really important to get behind all the work that people like Megan are doing, Um, and Arnie, Jill um, and Vacho, who um, are crying out to be providing in-reach services into prisons in Victoria. and, for all the people like, um, Aunty Julie Tongs who are doing incredible work, um, as well. It's just so important for us to get behind, um, Aboriginal community controlled health organisations and to be, yeah, really breaking down those barriers between, um, people in prison, um, and people outside of prison, um, and providing a standard of healthcare that, um, that, uh, stops death in custody and, and, um, you know, stops, stops custody altogether. So yeah, thanks so much, Megan. Thanks everyone.
2: So as we said earlier, um, we'll make the full video available um, for everyone um,
7: through our um, socials um, as well as um, the link that you used to register. Um, So now we're going to move to our panel. Um, Unfortunately, um, Amanda
2: Porter... um...
0: So you've just heard from the VALS Prison Healthcare webinar. It's been almost 20, 32 years since the findings of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody were handed down, but the current prison healthcare system is still failing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and contributing to deaths in custody. VALS brought together a panel of ex- experts discussing the need for a reformed prison healthcare system so that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are incarcerated can access culturally safe, trauma-informed healthcare, that is of equal adequacy to what they receive in the community. And this excerpt featured Narita Wright, Sarah Schwartz and Megan Williams. And I think what's really prominent about the, the, what we heard is that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are overrepresented at every stage of the criminal justice system. And prison health definitely is an oxymoron. Um, but yeah, like there's, there's lots of things that we, we can do. And I think part of it is also shifting, you know, mindsets around that prisons are part of the community and to, you know, lead by people that know, know best. And that's like community health controlled organizations. And I think if you do have the time, um definitely share around or listen to the full uh, webinar, because it was really, really meaningful and very insightful. And there really is invaluable knowledge in there. I also want to mention that there were mentions of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have passed away. And if this content is also distressing for you, you can call Lifeline on 131114 as well as 13YARN. So that's Lifeline 131114 and 13YARN for mob only support.
3: So it's up to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria. Not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you.
6: You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR. 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming
1: on 3cr.org.au.
3: Saturday Breakfast,
2: your Saturday morning serving of Union and Working News. Current events, opinion, and talk back. Every Saturday, 7:30 till 9 a.m. here on 3CR, 855
5: on your AM dial.
0: Up next we'll hear from Crunch and Michaela from the radioactive show in Convers- conversation with Ray Atchison from Reaching Critical Will and uh sorry Ray Atchison um will speak about countering militarism um from Reaching Critical so Reaching Critical Will is an organization which works for disarmament and arms control, and you can catch more about it at www.reachingcriticalwill.org, and we'll also link that in our show notes. And you can also tune in to the Radioactive Show on 3CR Saturdays from 10 a.m. or via the podcast, um, 3cr.org.au forward slash radioactive. On Thursday, 23rd of March...
2: Radioactive show producer Michaela Stubbs and myself spoke with Ray Atchison in the 3CR studios. Ray is visiting from New York. They are a staunch disarmament and peace organiser and have been working on the treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons since its inception. Ray is the director of Reaching Critical Will, which is the disarmament program of WILP, the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Ray has published two books in recent years, Banning the Bomb, Smashing the Patriarchy in 2021 and Abolishing State Violence, a World Beyond Bombs, Borders and Cages in 2022. I start the discussion with Ray by recalling our previous Zoom interview in the midst of the 2020 pandemic and lockdowns. Hi Ray, it's a pleasure to have you on the Radioactive Show again and I think the last time that we spoke was in 2020. While we were both in lockdowns in Nam um, and Melbourne, and you were in New York, respectively, and now here we are three years later in the studio, which is very exciting. In 3CR, um, I remember that time we last spoke, that you were describing the global pandemic as an opportunity to challenge some of the fundamental assumptions of many Western governments' spending priorities particularly the gearing towards militarism at a time when healthcare and social services were so desperately needed. Starting with a big question, but what are your reflections on that three years on?
8: Yeah, absolutely. So thanks for having me back on the show. It is great to be back here in the 3CR studio and not on Zoom, um, oceans away from each other. Uh, But I think, you know, at that time when we were Dealing with that, the early days of the pandemic and watching as arms manufacturers were being declared essential services in the United States and looking at the military budgets that were rising, um, even in those early days of the pandemic as countries were, um, dealing with the immediate effects of the health crisis and starting at that point, to think about vaccines and starting to think about what kind of air filtration we would need and what kind of uh, mass production of masks and other protective gear we would need. And now, three years later, we've seen a retrenchment of military spending and of militarism, and it's been at the expense of all of the health Needs that our countries and societies have so desperately needed throughout this, throughout this three years. And instead of seeing, you know, mass overhaul of buildings for new filtration, instead of seeing affordable masks being given out, instead of seeing vaccines freely distributed around the world equitably, um, and instead of seeing now even any health protocols in place in most places in the world, Instead, we have new war. We have new weapons being developed. We have new contracts between militaries and universities. We have um, nuclear weapon modernization programs going on still. So we've seen a continuation of the same that we saw in the midst of the beginning of the pandemic, and we've seen it actually get a lot worse. Um, the United States military budget has continued to rise um, throughout the pandemic, as have many other countries. And of course, weapon sales have been just astronomical in the context of Russia's war in Ukraine.
2: Yes. Um, it's a pretty dire picture. And I think you've just summarized across different aspects of militar- militarization and then at, at the cost of other um social services and our health and well-being and we've definitely seen that in australia as well so if we take go to 2021 um that was the year that you published your first book banning the bomb smashing the patriarchy and it's a great title how how are banning the bomb of course the nuclear weapons and smashing the patriarchy inextricably linked in your view
8: yeah, so the, the title is based around the idea that our systems of militarism, um, and including nuclear weapons as kind of the leading edge of that system in terms of being genocidal weapons that can destroy an entire city with one individual weapon, um, that these, these systems that have conceptualized militarism or nuclear weapons as necessary for security are really rooted in conceptions of power, uh, through violence um, and strength, through intimidation and domination over others. And feminist theory and queer theory have always approached um, that, that sort of philosophy or culture as um, an offshoot of, say, militarized masculinities. And so, of course, we're not talking about, you know, men this, women that or anything like that. But what we're talking about is the culture that suggests that um, in order to be a real man or to demonstrate masculine strength, you have to be willing and able to be violent. And so militarized masculinities are sort of looking at the the. How that cultural conception of, of strength and power in our own personal lives and in our societies then is implicated in international relations and international politics and what 's become known as geostrategic stability and nuclear deterrence theory and all of these grand conceptions of how the world is ordered in terms of power and in terms of um, you know might makes right at, at its core and so with this book. Um, I was trying to explore and explain how the majority of countries and activists and the Red Cross and many others affected communities, survivors of nuclear testing and use, came together to prohibit nuclear weapons, and in doing so, really confronted a lot of these patriarchal norms about weapons possession, about the idea of security manifesting through power and violence, and instead, taking a more cooperative, collaborative approach that Demilitarizes, uh, our approach to global politics. And so there's a lot bound up in the book. Obviously, it's a bit of a long read. Some of it is a little bit, um, you know, the details of the actual process of the negotiation, but a lot of it is also drawing in then these, these theoretical frameworks and concepts that are behind, um, the, the process to ban the bomb and the motivations for governments of the world to do so.
0: Mm. So you're listening to an excerpt um on 3CR Thursday breakfast 855 a.m. It's currently 757 and I just want to just chat a little bit about the the connection between both of the interviews that we are listening to or have listened to today. You know, previously we spoke about the VALS webinar, about the prison industrial complex and how it fails the people that it's meant to care for um, under the guise of um, protection or safety. And I think that's really similar to what we're speaking about here in terms of the military industrial complex. There is this illusion of safety and um, what we're doing to protect our community or our so-called international borders and really it just fails us in in so many so many ways and there's there's still a lot of hope i think in these interviews about Supporting people and what they can do to resist and you know what we can also do to resist so yeah I think just like listening to that interview through that lens um, will just give us a little bit of insight as well so we are going to go to the next part of the interview where crunch will be asking um, more questions
2: and so just, uh, for listeners, of course, you're talking about the process of, um, reaching the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons and which you and Wilpf and ICANN and many other organisations were, uh, really involved with throughout. Um, perhaps we'll just go to that treaty briefly. How How is that treaty standing coming into 2023 and what are your hopes
8: for next steps? So the treaty entered into force in 2021, um, which means that it got the 50 ratifications, national ratifications it needed to enter into force. Since then, we've seen an increasing number of countries sign and ratify the treaty. Um, And we're also at a point where the first meeting of states' parties happened last year. So at that meeting... Countries that are party to the treaty agreed on an action plan to implement the treaty's provisions moving forward. So the treaty has um, elements related to victim assistance and environmental remediation. Um, it has elements related to the gendered impacts of nuclear weapons and um, increasing gender diversity and other forms of diversity in nuclear disarmament efforts. It has... Um, Some elements related to, uh, the technical aspects of nuclear disarmament. And so the action plan that was agreed in the working groups that have been moving forward since, uh, since 2022 have really been about setting up the systems to implement these provisions of the treaty. And of course also to do outreach for the treaty's universalization. And so this remains the crux of the matter in many ways is getting more and more countries to sign on and in particular to get nuclear armed states or to get uh, nuclear armed state allies that currently do not support the treaty and that actually support the possession of nuclear weapons. So Australia of course is one of these along with South Korea and Japan um, and the states of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization NATO.
2: You're listening to a conversation between myself, Crunch, Michaela Stubbs, and disarmament organiser Ray Atchison. Ray has just spoken about the priority of bringing more state parties to sign the Nuclear Ban Treaty, including states like Australia that align themselves with nuclear weapons holders such as the United States. To follow this pressing campaign in Australia, visit the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons at icanw.org.au. Let's return to the conversation with Ray. We might return to um, the global context. And in early 2022, of course, Russia invaded Ukraine and that war has continued until the present day. And you argue in an article published for Wilf that the crisis is the inevitable result of building a world order based on militarism. Can you elaborate what you mean by this World order based on militarism. Mm-hmm.
8: It goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation. Really, this, this uh, retrenchment of military spending, the, um, the continued investment in tools of violence and structures of violence at the expense of everything else. So, if if you're spending you know, in the United States, more than 50% of your national budget on weapons and wars. What is it? What's going to be your main export? What is going to be the national interest? And so it has become the military industrial complex, leading US foreign policy, um, and also largely domestic policy. And we can talk about the militarization within the United States as well. But um, externally, it's led to this situation, for the U.S., but also for its allies and for its quote-unquote, you know, adversaries um, that are set up to counter each other, basically. And so just as the U.S. has invested in the militarized uh, system, so have Russia and China and other countries that – you know, are in this lockstep battle with the United States for, uh, dominance over the international system and influence over other countries in the world. And so by continuing to invest, um, in weapons and war at the expense of everything else, we've sort of created this inevitability of more war. And so I think it's important that we see the Russian invasion, um, of Ukraine in that context um because one of the things as peace activists or as disarmament activists that we get confronted with is well we have to support Ukraine um in this moment of of standing up to Russia and so peace activists are actually just apologists for Russia if you talk about you know the arms sales the the um incredible level of arms sales that we've seen or um if you talk about disarmament or demilitarization in this moment and it's really this sort of it's a binary approach to this problem right and it, and it nor ignores the fact that it is these governments that have all built this system together, leading to a situation where conflicts can only be solved through more violence, and that there are people and companies that are profiting of it. So of course, they're going to drive forward the war. The, the CEO of Raytheon and Lockheed Martin were very excited as the war in Ukraine got underway because their stock portfolios were ticking up very nicely as people were dying. Um, and so instead of relying on the system of international law, um, which Russia has egregiously violated in every moment of this conflict, from the invasion itself to the bombing of towns and cities, to the use of cluster bombs and landmines, to its threats to use nuclear weapons, every element of this conflict has been a violation of international law. But instead of looking to that body of work and the collective global governance that has also been built up over the, over the time since the se- end of the Second World War. Um, we've instead just seen countries resort again and again, these powerful, quote unquote, powerful countries resort again and again to violence in order to, um, dominate each other and the geostrategic environment.
0: So you've just heard from Crunch and Michaela from the radioactive show, which is in conversation with Ray Atchison from Reaching Critical Will on Countering Militarism. And RCW are an organization which works to for disarmament and arms control. And I think it's, a, you know, as we've said before, it plays in really nicely to the VALS Prison Healthcare webinar, uh, where we're talking about, I guess, what the illusions of so-called safety are and how we can, you know, work to resist them and i think just before we go to another interview we're just going to take a little break i know some of these topics have been a little heavy so grab your tea or if you're driving um just relax a little bit if you can and let's play a little song and this is fly by birds and nari okay.
1: The spirit of my flow, yeah I know they're still around. When they talk to me like, "What you doing with your life?" Hold your head up high. And when the time comes, I'll be there. rolling with a pride of a lion, and I never let another man tell me who I am. Never cared to break bread with the liars. I'm well aware that they're dead, but I'm flying high by him.
0: Was Birds by Sorry? That was um, Fly by Birds and Nairi, and yeah, we just wanted to listen to something, take a little break, um, and we will be back very shortly. It is currently eight oh eight on Thursday, Brecky. 3
7: Broadcasters present over a hundred radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows.
1: Come you are 3CR Community Radio, please
3: subscribe now. 3CR
1: Community Radio. 3CR 3CR
3: Radio
6: 3CR Suscríbete ahora.
1: Radio Radio Hima
7: Support the station that gives your community a voice.
1: Subscribe to 3CR.
5: They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in
1: Maravin fascism's on the march and we say yeah, nah. Yenah Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Alta
5: and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters.
0: Now we will be joined by Janelle from the Queensland-based peer sex worker organisation Respect Inc. And they join us today to discuss the campaign to decriminalise sex work in the state and to report on the Queensland Law Reform Commission's ongoing review of the sex industry. Sex workers in the state have long raised concerns about the legislation that currently regulates the industry as well as its enforcement by Queensland Police Force. Thanks so much for joining me here today, Janelle.
6: Hi, great to be here.
0: Great, super great to have you here. I know it's a a really, you know, important and diverse topic, but I thought that we could start by going over a bit, I guess, of the context of the campaign to decriminalise the sex industry in Queensland, and how does a confusing and really inconsistent legislative environment, you know, create or exacerbate legal risks for sex workers? And I, I guess also what are your, some of your concerns about enforcement practices by the Queensland Police Force?
6: Yeah, absolutely. Look, the campaign happened because sex workers have been heavily targeted by the police for many, many years. And um, so sex workers have joined together to, um, if you like, um, do a focused campaign to get rid of these harmful laws and achieve decriminalisation. So the campaign's all sex workers, but um, allies um, absolutely are supporting us in the background and have signed on to the campaign as well. So the laws right now in Queensland, um, it's it's a licensing framework similar to the one Victoria has that will be repealed at the end of December. Um, So it means that, um, you know, you have to apply as a sex industry business for a licence. But the problem in Queensland is the way the licensing structure was set up, um, only 20 licensed brothels have been able to get a licence and all other sex industry businesses, escort agencies, massage parlours, BDSM venues um all uh, are illegal and on top of that we have criminal code laws that criminalize sex worker safety strategies so if i just um you know let another sex worker know that where i'm going on my booking and then check in with them at the end of the booking to say you know i'm okay um and and or even just drive another sex worker you know my partner or friend to a booking um, I'm breaking the law and both sex workers can be charged. The other really hideous component of our laws is that as sex workers we can't work together and even if you're working in the same motel as another sex worker, you know, you wouldn't even know, right? You check into, um, make a booking at a motel, you check in, you don't know if there's another sex worker there. But if there is, um, the two of you can be charged and police do, um, you know, really target sex workers in Queensland using entrapment laws. So they're posing as our clients. They pretend to make a booking with us or they do make a booking with us, wasting our time and not. And we don't end up with any money from the job. But they turn up. Um, you might be interacting intimately with them. And they then pull out their badge at some point. Not only are you charged, but also they take your phone, and from your phone they can, you know, show that you've been communicating with another sex worker about the booking, and um, so that becomes your phone becomes tainted property, and that's another charge and they can seize your income or any money as also as tainted property. So it's a pretty cooked system and um, it really has, you know, really heavy impacts on our day-to-day work and our ability to work safely and, um, you know, our ability to communicate with each other and um, and build sex work community in Queensland.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think what I'm hearing is that you know there's such strength in numbers and it's I guess more so than strength it's also safety and awareness and yeah community and having um entrapment by the Queensland police and how they're enforcing it I can imagine that that's such a violation of like your workplace rights but also just your safety and how you go about your day and I can't um I can't even imagine that that is easy to, you know, grapple with, particularly when the legislation is not on your side either. Um, yeah,
6: absolutely. And lots of sex workers say that, right, that it's, you know, you're really like every every phone call you get, you just, you're not sure whether it's going to be, you know, a real paying client mm-hmm. um, so that you make your rent and your income um, or a a cop proposing as a client and so you know it really can it impacts on your mental health and your you know just how you feel about your work and how comfortable you feel every day so yeah lots of impacts.
0: Yeah of course and I think I also what what also came to my mind is how I guess more like financially disadvantaged sex workers I I know that Queensland Licensing, I believe, has chosen, has, has asked people to, I guess, choose like safety over violence. Um, can you tell us a bit more about how the state sex industry licensing structure can push workers into situation where their safety is compromised? And, you know, please tell me if I've got any of that wrong.
6: Yeah. So we sex workers say, you know, that we have to choose um, whether we work safely or legally if we choose to work safely, we are at risk of police um, charges and uh, surveillance and harassment. And we say that because um, of the, those, all of those sections of the criminal code that um, criminalise like really basic safety strategies of us communicating about where we're going on a booking, where we are, Checking in at the end of the booking, or even having a receptionist or someone to, you know, take your calls when you're busy and screen your bookings. Um, all of those um, aspects of our work being um, illegal um, means that, yes, basic safety strategies that other, you know, other small businesses or other workers are able to have, are not available to us. And. You know, the reality is, of course, many of us choose to still do those activities because it's, you know, it's the way we work um, using the strategies that we know, um, you know, provide us with some safety and security. And um, so many of us are actually working illegally every day um, or at least, you know, we'll... It, you know that's the ridiculousness, right? We might do one job, and you know that's crossed the line, but you know the next job we do might not. so it's um it is a really ridiculous kind of situation when when you consider that we are a workforce and we should therefore have workplace health and safety. Um, it's just not available to us as sex workers and in Queensland. And because most of our um, workplaces are criminalised under the current laws, um, you know, it's also very difficult to uh, negotiate good um, industrial rights and workplace health and safety conditions when you're working in a criminalised environment. And, you know, you really... You know, sex workers in Queensland, you know, we don't report crime to police because, you know, many of us have tried and, you know, been laughed out of the police station. So there's a really bad culture um, within the Queensland Police Force in how it treats sex workers. But If you um, you're really reluctant to report workplace conditions or problems as well, because you know that you're in a criminalised workplace and it may result in your workplace place being closed down and you and all your work colleagues uh, will then have nowhere to work from. So, yeah, it's all round a bad system.
0: Yes, I can definitely, you know, pick up on how that's happening systemically, in policy, in legislation, um, and that, you know, Frontline workers are at the at the brint of it, as in so many industries, and it's so clearly uh, you know in an, an intersection of so many issues, but you know from the essence of what you're saying, so much of it is about you know also labor rights as well i I understand that the queensland the law uh, law reform commission review report on the framework of a decriminalised sex work industry uh, in queensland i believe was due thirty uh, first of March this year. Could you update us on like what the present status of that campaign is? Uh,
6: yes. So the Attorney General in Queensland, Shannon Fentiman, referred uh, the issue of you know looking at what a decriminalised framework would look like in Queensland. She referred that to the um, Independent Queensland Law Reform Commission. So they've been undertaking a review, and that report. Um, as you say, has um, uh, been passed back from the Law Reform Commission to the Attorney General, and um, they are now reviewing that. Um, I would, I guess, it's a probably a very lengthy report considering all the other stuff the Queensland Law Reform Commission has done, and um, and you know at some point they will release that report and make a statement about their intentions. Um, and we, that time frame is unknown. So we're, you know, it's only, you know, I think the 31st of March, as you say, was the date it was due. So we're still all waiting to hear, um, what that looks like. I would though wanted to mention to you that one of the things that happens in Queensland a lot for us is that Asian and migrant sex workers are really, um, singled out and targeted by the police here and um you know that's you know that's because of the different ways that people work and many asian and migrant sex workers work in motels or in massage parlors and um there have been you know really hideous pieces of media done here in queensland and i believe in victoria um that really conflate sex work and um And exploitation and trafficking in ways that are simply just not true. So we're hearing back from a lot of Asian and migrant sex workers in Queensland that it's, um, you know, their rights are being really, um, badly, um, trampled on by the Queensland police and that the media is vilifying them, um, in ways that, um, are not a true representation of their work experiences. So we're hoping that the QLRC report will um, recommend full decriminalisation of sex work and the removal of these Queensland police powers that are allowing them to yeah target sex workers relentlessly
0: yeah I think that's a very important point It's so often the migrant workers um that are you know unfairly discriminated against and th- th- yeah as I' mentioned previously there's so many um there's so many intersections here of labor rights migrant rights decriminalizing sex work legislation reforms um and like also unions and human rights there's there's a lot in here um but I guess what I'm also hearing, and you can correct me if I'm wrong too, that so much of the labour rights issues, it kind of goes to the stigmatisation of the industry. These concerns, I, I feel, are sometimes frequently siloed from mainstream cross-section labour rights discussions. And they were leading up to May Day 2023. So I was wondering if you could speak on how you've like seeing solidarities from unions and workers' collectives outside of the sex industry really shift over time and what you'd like to see more of in the future?
6: Yeah, thanks for that. Um, we um, we have seen a major shift, actually, in how, um, you know, across the board, um, a recognition that sex work is work. And for us, that's kind of a starting point when people start to understand that um, sex work is work and can, um, you know, consider it through um, a, the lens of industrial rights and workplace health and safety rights, then I think we move beyond a lot of the moralising that has, you know, um, stagnated conversations in the past. So in Queensland, the Queensland Council of Unions which is, you know, like the peak body for unions in Queensland,
4: mm-hmm.
3: has
6: invited us this year to march um, as um, as a group in the uh, Labor Day march. And it'll be the first time we've been invited in this way. So it's pretty exciting. And we've been asked to march right up the front. Appropriately, we'll be behind the First Nations group and um, they will lead and... Um, And that campaign is, you know, around the voice, um, in, in Australia. And we will be with our, holding our red umbrellas high, um, right behind and, um, but leading the rest of the march. And what I guess it says to us is it's a show of solidarity and support from, uh, you know, across a wide range of unions that have signed on to our campaign or got behind us. To support our advocacy. Yes. And, um, you know, one of the big problems we've had in Queensland is uh, the workplace health and safety regulator has no role in relation to any sex industry business in Queensland. Um, and so effectively, there is no workplace health and safety, um, you know, rights or recognition um, across the state. And so we as um, the sex worker organisation in Queensland, Respect, Inc., and Decrim Queensland, the large group of sex workers from around the state who have been um, running this campaign, we want to see um, Respect um, in charge of developing a set of workplace health and safety guidelines... Absolutely. ..for the sex industry so that we can really shift, um, you know, how workplaces happen? What are the requirements? And um, you know what people can expect as um, you know basic workplace health and safety rights, and yep. then move on to industrial rights.
0: Absolutely. Unfortunately, Janelle, that's kind of all we have time for today. I know I could speak to you for hours and hours about how important this is and we'll definitely link, um, you know, what you've mentioned and the organisations and the causes in our show notes today. But thank you so much for your time and for coming on today. Thanks for having us. Bye. Bye. We've just heard from Janelle from Queensland-based peer sex worker organization, Respect Inc. And they joined us to discuss the campaign to decriminalize sex work in the state and to report the Queensland Law Reform Commission ongoing review of the sex industry. It is 8.28 and we have time for a quick rundown of what we played today. So first we had a replay from Jean and Dale from 3CR's Dogs Programme, which is the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools, about how affordability of uniforms and school supplies impacts children as they return to school in 2023. And we then heard an excerpt from the Vowles Prison Healthcare webinar, uh, which was talking about how there are experts that came together about needing to reform the prison healthcare system so that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are incarcerated can actually access culturally safe, trauma-informed healthcare that is of equal adequacy uh, for what they would receive in the community. And that was panelled by Narita Wright, Sarah Schwartz and Megan Williams. And then we heard from Crunch and Michaela from the radioactive show, in conversation with Ray Atchison about reaching critical will and countering militarism and then lastly we heard from Janelle who is from a queer sex uh, sex worker organization in Queensland called respect Inc that joined us to discuss the campaign to discuss sex work in the state and how long-standing concerns about legislation as well as entrapment and enforcement by the Queensland police continues to impact them today You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Hope you had a lovely listen.
2: 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.